Welcome to the Real Estate Espresso Podcast, your morning shot of what's new in the world of real estate investing. I'm your host, Victor Manash. This is the weekend edition. We've got a very special show for you today. Today's show is one of the most important shows of this upcoming year. On today's show, we're going to take a step back and look at the big picture to see what that big picture is telling us about the world of investing. We're going back to fundamentals to peel back the layers and understand how investing is supposed to work and then look at the distortions that exist in our system so we understand how the new rules need to be written. Under the traditional rules of the game, money comes in one of three ways. Number one, earned income. Number two, residual income. Or number three, capital gains. Yes, we're going back to the very beginning. These are all based on active businesses that generate value and the income earned is a fair price for the value created. People can earn passive income by investing passively in those active businesses. This year, we learned there's another source of money, printed money, the government handout. And in the past, this fourth and final source was hard to get. It's always been there, but it's rarely talked about. So we rarely considered it to be part of the playbook. In the past year, this final source has been increased to such an extent that it forms a significant percentage of the economy. might come to you in the form of a government grant, perhaps a tax credit, maybe even as an unemployment check. This fourth source of cash has become more available and therefore has increased in importance. It's worth paying attention to. Most of the wealth in the world has been created through some combination of residual income and capital gains. That's the second and third sources of money coming at you. The fourth method coming from government is a bit of a mystery. If you can't be the beneficiary of government handouts directly, is there a way that you can become a beneficiary indirectly? When this newfound money enters the economy, where does it go exactly? Does it actually have a stimulative effect as it's intended, Or does it end up stranded on someone's balance sheet for the next 30 years, where it contributes very little to the actual economy? See, in order for money to stimulate the economy, it has to circulate. It goes from the car dealership back to the automotive manufacturer, who pays the assembly line worker, who buys a loaf of bread, who pays the baker, who buys the flour, who pays the flour mill, who buys the wheat, who pays the farmer, who buys the tractor. You get the idea. That money circulating in the economy is what drives economic activity. When government money is used to pay down debt, it has zero stimulative effect. The liability was reduced and eliminated on someone's balance sheet, and apart from that, it did nothing to create new economic activity. So if the government gives you a check for 600 bucks or two grand, and you put 400 bucks down in your credit card bill, or you put 800 bucks in your savings account for a long time, then the impact of that stimulus is much, much less. Only a small percentage of the money being printed is making its way directly into the Main Street economy. Recent estimates from several economists that I follow suggest that no more than 60% of that money is circulating in the economy. Now, for stimulus to have the desired effect, you really want that number to be greater than 100%. You want that money to circulate through the economy multiple times. Now, in the CARES Act that was passed on March 27th of 2020, over $2 trillion of spending, there was a line item consisting of $450 billion earmarked for a large business in the category called Other. Exactly what was $450 billion of other spending that was too complicated to explain? We may never know, but the money went somewhere. We see a lot of monetary stimulus resulting in asset price inflation, in particular in the stock market. And this final piece of the puzzle is inflation. So let's take a deeper look at this. The government publishes their annual consumer price index as the measure of inflation. It seems that whenever the government doesn't like how the numbers are turning out, they change the measurement to give it a more politically acceptable number. There are a number of adjustments the government uses to fiddle with the inflation number. One of these is a method called substitution, 
I'll explain it with an example. Let's say the price of beef goes up a lot this year. By itself, beef could increase the consumer price index. But the folks at the Bureau of Labor and Statistics assume that if you can't afford beef, you'll switch to something cheaper, like chicken or pork. And since the price of pork didn't go up as much as the price of beef, or perhaps maybe pork went down, they'll record the substitution to a cheaper equivalent instead of recording the price increase for beef. This is just one of several adjustments, and we don't have time to go through all of them on today's show. But suffice it to say, the real level of inflation, in my opinion, is actually higher than what the government says it is. So what is the impact of inflation? It causes devaluation of the currency, and it causes prices to increase. It wipes out savings, it wipes out the spending power for those on fixed income, and it wipes out debt. And it's that third one that is the most interesting to us as real estate investors. Now, you see, people behave differently based on their expectation of inflation. There's a behavioral concept called anchoring, and it doesn't matter what the real rate of inflation is. If inflation is, say, 10%, and you tell people that it's really 2%, they'll behave differently than if it is actually 10%, and you tell them it's 10%. You see, if people believe that inflation is 10%, and their income is only growing at 2%, they know for sure they're falling behind, they're going to be angry about it. There'll be protests in the streets. But if their wages went up by 2% and the government tells them inflation is 2%, the population will be okay with it. Even if they know intuitively they're losing ground, they'll think it's their own individual circumstance that's at play here rather than a large-scale systemic problem. Since they can't prove the government's to blame, they paddle harder and try to make ends meet. The government changed the way they measure inflation back in 1980, and then they changed it again in the early 1990s. If you go back and state the rate of inflation according to the 1980s method, you would see that inflation is running much higher than the current narrative. The folks at shadowstats.com keep a running measure of the current method and the old method. The average over the past decade using the old measurement is closer to 8 to 9%, and it's more like 6% if you're using the 1990s method of calculation. That differs widely from the Bureau of Labor and Statistics that tell you it's around 2%. There's truly a bit of deception happening here, and very few people have the wherewithal to figure it out. Now, It's all the printing of money that's actually inflationary. It's not the increase in prices per se. That's just a symptom of inflation. The true inflation is the inflation of the money supply, which makes currency proportionally less valuable. When there's too much money in the system, people are willing to pay more. If the currency is being devalued at 2% a year, what we're really saying is the government's willing to wipe out the purchasing power of the dollar over a period of time. Put a precise calculation on it, a 2% inflation rate, which is the government target, will devalue the currency by 64% over the next 50 years. Now, the official rate of inflation last year was 1.7%. Over the same time period, we saw rents increase by much more than 1.7%. In fact, the national average for rent increases over the past decade has been 36% across the nation. And if you divide that number by 10, because we're talking about a decade, you're looking at an average of 3.6% on an annual basis over the past decade. We're talking about a rate of rent increase that's almost double the stated rate of inflation over the same time period. But interestingly enough, the rate of rental increase matches the rate of inflation pretty closely if you look at the shadow stats numbers using some of the older methods of calculating inflation. So what happens if the inflation rate's not 2%, but in fact it's 4%? In that case, the purchasing power of the dollar will be reduced by 64% in just 25 years. See, 50 years might be a little long for many people's planning horizon, but 25 years, that's the same as the amortization for a loan. By the time your loan is paid off, the value of that loan would have been reduced by 64%. Now, the price of your property will have gone up to compensate for the fallen value of the currency. So if you do the math, 
you'll discover that by leveraging your investment, by borrowing money at a rate you can afford, the devaluation of the currency combined with the 4 to 1 leverage that comes from borrowing 80% of the purchase price at the beginning of the project will contribute an additional 19% to your rate of return on an annual basis. That is, if you hold the asset for the entire 25 years. See, housing prices have increased by 11% during the past year during the pandemic. The narrative is that the housing sector is booming and it's leading the economic recovery. But do you believe that prices would have increased by 11% if it weren't for the fact that there's so much low-interest debt available? The price increase is only made possible by the incredibly low interest rates and the huge amount of new debt that's been made available this year. I mean, think about it. If you could borrow at 2% from the bank and the currency is being devalued at 3% or 4% or 5%, the only logical thing to do is to borrow as much money as you can and put it in an asset where the price can at least keep the pace with inflation. If you could do that with income-producing real estate, the only logical thing to do is borrow money for a long time and hold on to those assets for as long as you can. Most of the self-made wealth in the world has been made the old-school way, by buying income-producing assets and never selling them. The accumulation of the income from all those assets has a compound effect, and when you multiply that compound effect by the devaluation of the currency, the increase in price goes to the benefit of the equity holder, not the lender. That's how you become an indirect beneficiary of inflation, by holding assets that are subject to inflationary pressure. You can be on the winning side of that trade, and by borrowing long, you're effectively shorting the dollar. We're entering a period where politicians are trying to outdo each other to see who can print the most money. There's no political narrative anywhere on the planet talking about balanced budgets or even surplus budgets. See, you want to buy assets that you're going to be comfortable holding for the next 25 or 30 years, and you want to leverage those assets with cheap money at responsible levels of leverage so you can generate decent cash flow. See, inflation is not going away anytime soon. And even if you're not getting a government paycheck directly, you can still be the indirect beneficiary of all this printing of money just by being on the right side of the trade. As you think about that, have an awesome rest of your weekend. Go make some great things happen. We'll talk to you again tomorrow.